0: Good afternoon. It's Monday the 21st of March 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK, UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Deirish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border, and our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. Uh,
1: we'll get straight on with Ukraine. And here we have uh, TASS reporting that Ukrainian and Russian delegations to uh, resume talks today, but these are, unlo- these are online. So an online meeting between the Ukrainian and Russian delegations is planned for the 21st of March. Uh, and uh, so this is recording to so-called high ranking sources. Uh, we will see how that goes. Uh, well, we'll come on to Boris Johnson in a second, because he's clearly uh, wanting to uh, put as many spanners in the works as possible. But uh, let's, oh, well, here he is. Uh, I spoke to Zelensky uh, this afternoon. This was tweeted out uh, yesterday uh, to set out how I'll be working to advance Ukraine's interests at a meeting at meetings of NATO and the G7 this week. Uh, the UK will continue to step up military, economic and diplomatic support to help bring an end to this terrible conflict. Uh, so in time for that, the uh, uh, Ministry of Defence released this uh, little video clip showing uh, all the things that the UK is doing. So those nasty Russians are uh, all around Ukraine. But don't worry, because the UK is not going near the place. Uh, we're sending, uh, well, what? A few troops, a couple of aircraft. I mean, yeah, but much. trainers,
0: We what we want to do is train other people to do the killing and the dying for us. Yes. is what we're doing, Mike.
1: Uh, but, uh, you know, Estonia, Poland and so on, uh, we're not actually, uh, well, and we've got uh, an aircraft carrier in the, uh, in the, North Sea, and we've got uh, a destroyer in the Mediterranean, where by the way, the destroyers don't work, right? So so I'm not entirely sure exactly what a great contribution we're making.
0: Well, not much is the answer because the UK's military has been almost reduced to its knees, despite the denials by the UK government uh, and the Ministry of Defence.
1: Yes, um, so over to the United States and CBS News here, transcript Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin on the face of the nation uh, yesterday, Uh, And so what was he saying? He was asked um, about Russia's use of hypersonic uh, missiles, of course, used for the first time, uh, was it on Friday? uh, And, uh, or sorry, on Saturday. And he said, uh, I don't see this as a game changer. I think, again, the reason uh, that he, uh, Putin, in other words, is resorting to using these types of weapons is because he's trying to reestablish some momentum. Is that how you see it?
0: No, I don't see it at all. Like uh, the Russians uh, on their own initiative went ahead and developed these uh, weapons and they've done so successfully. America is now left in the dust. They've uh, tried it, but haven't uh, haven't, uh, got hypersonic weapons into their arsenal. So the American's well behind. And of course, if any other country takes a lead, uh, in in uh, military matters, then uh, they're going to get the full force of bad press. So why has Putin done it? Because he's got it. He's also making a statement to the West that he has these missiles, but the West doesn't have a capability to counter them.
1: Um, so here's uh, Associated Press, uh, republished by the uh, Mail Online. Uh, Ukraine war's backdrop in US push for hypersonic weapons. So there's an acknowledgement here that they don't have them. Um, so R- Russia's hypersonic weapons... Uh, Using the sorry, using the Ukraine wars as a, as a background on the desperate effort uh, by the U.S. military to catch up with Russia, um, the focus is on the U.K. U.S. Navy's decision to, to install hypersonic weapons on the uh, Zumwalt class uh, stealth destroyers, um, and of course, this was because the stealth destroyers had a a a. a a gun on it, which eventually became too expensive to use. So they're not allowed to use it at all anymore. So they're going to attempt to deploy uh, hypersonic missiles on it. But as you say, they don't have any this- functional ones yet. So. It's going to be the end of 2023 before they even think about putting these on these ships.
0: This is a panic measure, Mike, because the Unwelt class utter disaster and they've achieved nothing apart from consuming billions of dollars. So this is the the Americans now grasping at straws to try and put their own house in order, which I don't believe they're going to do.
1: Um, so maybe you could uh, bring David onto the programme at this point. Um, it does seem, David, to me at least, that there is a certain, and we're, we'll see a little bit, more in a second a little bit of desperation creeping in on on the western side um, in order to try to maintain a narrative that, that Putin is floundering and not really uh, achieving anything by what he's doing
2: well the, the narrative from the western side is that, that that Putin is insane Putin has lost his mind he's a madman he's irrational don't see any evidence for that on the ground uh, don't see any evidence that the Russians would fall and it true. Um, and then we've got uh, estimates of uh, death tolls in the Russian army that if correct would mean that the total, um, the total casualties, including, including wounded, would be some 50,000. We don't see any evidence of that. So they're trying to push the narrative that essentially the Russians have been, have been fought to a standstill and can no longer move forward. Um, and, of course, the Russians are trying to push a, a narrative that that everything is everything is going according to plan and it's all well oiled machine and naturally the truth is somewhere between those two i'd have to say the western narrative is not standing up well however
1: indeed
0: i just wanted to add to that a little bit later we're going to hearing some clips of uh, senior us uh, military uh, retired military officers who are commenting on what's happening and their opinion is very different from what we're hearing in the mainstream media with respect to how successful the Russians are being or not.
1: Mm. Um, Well, in the meantime, uh, the Homes for Ukraine program has uh, launched in the UK. So let's uh, see the little bit of uh, video that they're going. This this is a campaign as far as the British government is concerned, a campaign to get uh, uh, Ukrainians into the UK and housed, uh, as you know. So people arriving under this scheme uh, will be allowed to live and work in the UK for up to three years. They're going to be allowed to access healthcare, benefits, employment support, education, and English language tuition. Individual sponsors in the UK can be of any nationality. So this is if you're if you're wanting to uh, uh, host one of uh, these Ukrainian families or or some of the Ukrainian immigrants, uh, the, uh, you can be of any nationality. You can have any immigration status in this country, provided that you have at least six months leave to remain in the UK so that you can provide at least six months accommodation. Um, And uh, they can live, or the Ukrainians can live in any part of uh, the United Kingdom. To ensure a safe and suitable environment for people arriving from Ukraine, uh, the UK government will be carrying out checks, background and in-person on anyone who volunteers as a sponsor, on their family, and on the accommodation that they'll provide. And for example, the accommodation they say should be safe and free from health hazards, be heated, and give your guests adequate access to bathroom and kitchen facilities. We'll also be doing checks on those arriving from Ukraine, but they don't specify what those checks would be. Uh, But the thing is, the thing that really sort of creased me up about that, Brian, is uh, uh, to ensure a suitable environment, uh, they're gonna be carrying out checks, including on the accommodation, which has to be safe and free from health hazards, uh, be uh, heated. Um, Well, that's not something that applies to a lot of rental accommodation for British citizens.
0: Uh, That's absolutely true. But also for people taking um, Ukrainians in under their own roofs, this is going to produce some issues. And if we could just bring Debbie um, in, she's got some comments on this because uh, she's been researching what the real uh, impact is of having a a Ukrainian family staying with you.
3: Yes, good afternoon, everyone. Yeah, I have been doing a little bit of research and um, not necessarily just for Ukrainian refugees, but for any refugee, I've been been looking at the terms and conditions, if you like, of sponsorship, and I think it it throws up a lot of questions. The £350, for example, that um, that, that you get a month is per family, so it's per address, it's not per person. And it's an optional payment as well. And you have to look at how does this affect your mortgage? How does it affect your insurance? Um, Do you have fire doors? Um, Are your children going to be subjected to scrutiny and security checks? And what if something goes wrong? You know, things do go wrong. Who's going to be culpable or responsible then? And I think I I was given some advice by a a doctor in America of social engineering, and she said to me, um, look at supranational law because this means that it it covers all boundaries. So the law that we have in the UK would be overridden by treaties that the United Kingdom had signed with either the World Health Organization, and as we know, there's a new WHO pandemic treaty coming up, or the United Nations. So there's an awful lot of questions to be asked, and especially down here in the Southwest, many children aren't getting the schools that they choose. So how is that going to be affected? How are the children going to get access to schools? Our hospital down here is all but closed. So is there going to be enough health facilities for these people? So this isn't just Ukrainian refugees, this is refugees in general, and how the international and supernatural and national law actually applies. So I would just urge homeowners to be a little bit cautious.
1: Uh, the the uh, question of mortgages and so on. This is a this is a valid question. Of course, you're not yep. allowed to buy a home and let it out to somebody yep. without having a special kind of mortgage, uh, and the same goes for insurance. Um, and uh, well, maybe these uh, maybe these situations are just going to be ignored in the short term
0: well everything is running on passion at the moment that the label is that if you are from, from ukraine then you are a person that can be allowed into the country and we should all accommodate those people but of course we're not seeing the substance to what what's actually happening here so um we are extremely sympathetic to ukrainians being affected by the war in Ukraine. Nobody should be in any doubt about that. What we are saying is, what exactly is the UK government up to here? Are they telling us the truth? And I don't, I don't think they are.
1: Um, well, David, on Friday, we were talking about uh, uh, Zelensky's uh, running around various parliaments and other legislatures around the world giving speeches. Uh, I think you've got some more on this.
2: Yes, this is a, a, a little review of where we got, where he's got to and, and, and where it come stuck it came on st- on stuck is is an interesting story. Uh, so we have here. First of all, he came to the Mother of Parliaments. So he came to Westminster, and uh, and he he evoked Churchill, um, and he compared um, the Ukrainian war against the Russians to fighting the Nazis. Um, and uh, he uh, then continued on, and he said um, that we will we will fight to the end. We will fight in the. Uh, at sea, in the air, we will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. We will fight in the forests, in the field, on the shores, in the streets. So, with a clear um, a reference, without actually explicitly stating it, uh, to Churchill's famous wartime speech. Uh, and this this went down extremely well in britain. it went it went down. Uh, it was it, it, i mean, there was there was people in Parliament sitting in tears. There was people deeply moved by this and it seemed to be bought. Now this that I would have thought this would have been viewed as crash and a bit crass and a bit cringeworthy um in any other time in any other age in this country. But it was it was completely absorbed by uh our, our wise overlords in Parliament. So then Zelensky went to the United States. And um the same thing happened again. So he was he had a video speech before Congress, again, sitting in his, his, uh, uh, his olive green t-shirt, and uh, again, a, a rapturous response, huge applause, and again, referring to things which refer, he, he, he's trying to trigger the, the, the cultural icons of the nation he's speaking to, and he's doing it in a way which I would have thought would have been viewed, as 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 fumbling, but it's not. For some reason, this is working. So here he's, he's referring to uh, the I Have a Dream speech from Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he said, uh, I have a dream. These words are known to each of you today. I can say I have a need. I need to protect our sky. I need your decision, your help, which means exactly the same. The same you feel when you hear the words I have a dream. So a, a very awkward and kind of Obtuse way of trying to trigger an emotional reaction in his in his audience, but the remarkable thing is it worked. I didn't pick up a word of of criticism uh, of him or or his approach in America over the use of Martin Luther King's speech for his um, uh, for his own uh, political purposes, and um, it 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 it's, it, it, get, it got even stronger in the United States. He said. Uh, I'm, I'm almost 45 years old today, my age stopped when the hearts of more than 100 children stopped beating. So he's, he's really playing the emotional card. I see no sense in life if it cannot stop the deaths. Um, and he said this to a Congress which has uh, authorised the killing by abortion, 50 million American babies in the womb. But no one, no one said anything about that. He's talking about 100 children being killed in the Ukrainian conflict. and 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 again, this emotional reaction to it. Um, and then on to Germany, and he, he, he pulled the same trick again, and again it worked. He urged Germany to tear down this wall, um, uh, referring to the, the famous Ronald Reagan uh, appeal to Mr. Gorbachev. Um, so we have here the Mail Online reporting, uh, an emotional address, it's always emotional. To Parliament, Zelensky also accused Germany of putting its economy before his, co- before his country's security. In the run-up to the Russian invasion, it's not a Berlin Wall; it's a wall in Central Europe between freedom and bondage. And this wall is growing bigger with every bomb dropped on the Ukraine. He mr uh, tear down this wall. So again, he's going back to emotional moments in German history to trigger an emotional response, and again. Uh, again it worked and um, then he went to Jerusalem and here it came unstuck um, now despite the fact that Zelensky is Jewish and I would have I would have expected him to understand the culture he's speaking into here it, it, it really it really hit a wrong note in Jerusalem uh, so he was he tried to compare the situation in Ukraine to the holocaust and it didn't have the effect he'd been hoping for um, he, uh, uh, unlike the, uh, the, the the speeches he made in Britain and America and Germany, um, so he he went to the Knesset over Zoom and made comparisons to World War II, and most of it related to the Holocaust, and this this really went down very badly indeed. Uh, former Cabinet Minister Stein, uh, Steinich, now Lekud well, MK, went so far as to say, if Zelensky's speech was given in normal non-war times, it would have bordered on Holocaust denial. Every comparison between a regular war and the extermination of millions of Jews in gas chambers in the framework of the final solution is a total distortion of history. Uh, The same is true for the claim that Ukrainians helped Jews in the Holocaust. The historic truth is that Ukrainian people cannot be proud of its behaviour in the Holocaust of Jews. We maybe discuss that more in extra time. So this was was viewed very badly. And... uh, also, when it came to the appeal for weapons, Israel's not doing anything on this front, it's not, support. it's not sending weapons, it's not sending support, it's not engaging in uh, the blockade of Russia. Um, that also fell on deaf ears. When, when it comes to actually sending weapons, uh, like the Iron Dome, which Zelensky asked for, despite Israel not being able to send it for technical reasons and being unlikely to be of much use in any case, there's consensus in the Cabinet that Israel should not get involved in that way, so it fell completely on deaf ears.
0: And, so, and David, um, can we just just why do you think why do you think that was? Was it the fact well, this that he is, went really, too far and and literally offended uh, the Israelis, or was this is this a cultural thing that's difficult for us to understand? Well, I th- I
2: think essentially it's a cultural thing, um, but it's it's a very interesting question. Why should it fail in Jerusalem and work everywhere else? Um, I I suspect the reason comes down to the fact that Western culture outside of outside of Israel, Western culture is very much infantilized and very much running on raw emotion and not facts, not clear analysis, not self interest. Um, and, and not deep historical understanding. And therefore, these very surface appeals to emotion worked extremely well. He took the same trick to Jerusalem, where whether you agree with the narrative or not, uh, there is a great many people who are encyclopedic on uh, the matters relating to the Holocaust. This is, this is still a profoundly significant issue in Israeli common culture and society. Again, when we get to extra time, we might discuss that in more detail. And he tried to pull the same surface emotional trick in that context, and it fell flat. Because because essentially he was dealing with people who believed in something, as opposed to the West, who only believe whatever the press told them to believe that week. It's a much more... Um, rigorous test that he that his rhetoric was 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 put to and it failed in that case. I kind of feel it should have failed in Britain as well, but it didn't.
1: Well, part of the problem that it didn't, I think, David, is because you know Boris has been playing the same card, the Churchill card. He's been deliberately standing, uh, you know, with that Churchillian stoop uh, when he's having his photographs taken and so on, um, and uh, so he he is playing that card as well, and people are buying it.
2: Yes, people are buying it, but this, this is also, this is, again, one of the faults of the mainstream media, that there's not anybody calling out Boris and his Churchillian stoop, uh, and uh, looking at things in more depth and more detail. They, they're just happily going along with, uh, with the PR spin. And this is where our mainstream media is badly letting us down,
1: um, which takes us on to uh, one-state solutions.
2: Well, there's a couple of things to finish on the Ukraine here. This this is a, a just a tweet put out by a, a bit of a, a a political fanboy, not a, a main player by any any means, talking about uh, he believes in the one-state solution to Ukrainian crisis. So he see Ukraine and Norway and indeed Britain. And indeed, uh, Switzerland are all subsumed in the grand European superstate, And he thinks, well, yeah, that'll fix things. Um, so that's that's his view. But of course, this has been reflected in, in statements by people like Emmanuel Macron, who's talking explicitly about the response to this must be a more united, a more coherent, a more uh, military, militarized Europe. So this is simply the um, the, political, uh, it, it, the political wing of the public uh, who follow, um, in, in a fan-like fashion, uh, these ideas, reflecting what is being put forward by people at the, uh, in the corridors of power in Europe. And this is always likely to be the issue. This is what we predicted uh, many years ago that a war in Ukraine would, would be the, the spur to a more united and re and rearmed Europe. And that does seem to be the direction in which it's heading. Um, and uh, finally here, um, a, an interesting bit from a, from a survey here, the, the, the links with COVID is, is, is strange, but it's there. Perceptions of war crimes by vaccine acceptance. I believe Russia is committing war crimes in the Ukraine. People who, believe, who, who received three or more doses of the vaccine, 88% agreed with that statement. People who had two doses of the vaccine, 70% agreed with that statement. People who refused the vaccine, only 32%. And this is another thing that we've seen before. We've seen it over Brexit. The people who think for themselves, think for themselves. And they think for themselves, in, in all sorts of different situations, in all sorts of different contexts. Um, and the people who follow the narrative and obey and think that compliance is virtue and not cowardice, they do that in every situation. And you end up having, having these, these two somewhat different societies living side by side with really very different views, as, as that survey shows.
1: Yes. Now you have one more just before we leave Ukraine.
2: Oh, yes, I do. Yes. Sad news, everyone. Uh, when, I, when I used to go to Jerusalem uh, before COVID stopped all travel, uh, I used to drink at Putin's. There was a pub on the Jaffa Road, not far from the old city, called Putin's Pub. Well, um, Putin's Pub is no longer called Putin's Pub. It's now called Pub.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. Where is that? I, and
2: I'm very sorry. To, I'm very sorry to see that.
1: Yes. Okay. Well, look, uh, it's in Russia, don't mention the war is what the UK government is saying. New censorship law means anyone using the words war invasion faces up to 15 years in jail. The Kremlin is taking increasingly extreme measures to prevent Russians from knowing the truth. Uh, This is all according to the uh, uh, UK government on their latest update from Ukraine. Uh, But it seems unfortunately for the UK's narrative, it's not just in Russia that this is happening. Uh, So here's uh, Dominique Samuels, uh, who was tweeting this out, uh, saying, I have no problem with celebrating the bravery of the Ukrainian people, but for the prime minister to present Ukraine as a beacon of democracy is is demonstrably false. Banning uh, banning the Russian language, opposing news channels, uh, and deposing leaders via a coup is not democratic at all. Why lie? So this is what's happened in in the run-up to this uh, conflict. Uh, But now Zelensky has uh, decided to take the next step. Uh, I'd like to remind all politicians from all camps, wartime exposes quite well the paucity of personal ambitions uh, of those who try to put their own ambitions, uh, their own party or career above the interests of the state, uh, the people's interests. And well, the, the implication there is that the, the interests of the state are the people's interests.
0: Well, he, he's absolutely telling you what he's about.
1: I and mean, he he is this, is, this is no different from the Soviet Union. Right. So it goes on. Uh, That's why the National Security and Defence Council of Ukraine has decided that, given the full-scale war being waged by the Russian Federation and the ties that some political organisations have with that state, any activity or of a number of political parties will be suspended pending martial law. Um, So he has announced uh, that eleven opposition political parties, uh, which are supposedly linked to Russia, have been effectively banned. Uh, Among those are the uh, Platform for Life, which is an opposition party. Uh, and uh, that holds 44 of the 450 seats in the uh, Ukrainian parliament. Um, And another one is the Progressive Socialist Party of Ukraine, uh, and that leaves only the neo-Nazi or the alleged neo-Nazi parties uh, effectively uh, leading the political, uh, providing all the political leadership in Ukraine. Um, So David, once again, lots of criticism of uh, one party in this war by the British government with respect to their... Uh, approach to opposition voices, uh, and no criticism, no criticism whatsoever for the other party, um, but they're playing the same tactics.
2: Exactly. so. I mean, the the clampdown in Russia on opposition voices has been has been pretty severe and pretty immediate. We all saw the um, very brave Russian news presenter uh, who walked onto set uh, behind the news broadcast as it went out live. Uh, with a sign saying, uh, saying no war. And uh, she was, I think, immediately dismissed and, and may have other, other problems coming her way. And she, she showed considerable personal courage to put that message forward. And clearly that was not allowed out in Russian state media. Um, but, of course, the same, is, the same is true of the Ukraine. Um, the, the, the clampdown is just as severe there. And there's not a word from the Western, the so-called free Western uh, governments uh, to criticise uh, this in any way, shape or form. And it's, again, it shows that the, the hypocrisy of, of those in power in the West, they don't believe in any of the fine ideas that they'll, they'll trumpet out with, with, with velvety words and, and, and persuade us all that they are. On the right side of history, that they are they are goodness personified. They don't believe any of it because when push comes to shove, when having a difficult decision to make or a difficult statement to make, it, it just it evaporates. It comes down to uh, a policy that is clearly set elsewhere, that's not derived from the from the principles they espouse. Um, and is is instead derived from some geopolitical strategy not made in parliaments, not made in in the nations that uh, that they're meant to lead and represent.
0: thank you Thank you for that, David. And uh, that business about the geopolitical strategy running in the background, we're going to focus in on this a little bit more. But um, what's the situation? Well, of course, we're here in UK, supposedly a democracy, but We're not allowed to hear free speech. We're not allowed to hear dissenting opinions. And of course, Russia today is one of the sources that the British government is very keen that nobody in the UK should be able to see. So let's have a little look at uh, one of the articles from a couple of days ago, which is particularly interesting, not only from the picture, which of course is showing some of the what is in fact vast array of Western weapons, which have now been captured by the Russians. Uh, so here's modern anti-tank weapons. I think it's what's in those canisters. And uh, the headline is particularly interesting. American military expert explains the slow Russian advance in Ukraine. It goes on to say propaganda in the West has created false expectations of Ukrainian success, retired US officer says. Um, So let's have a look at the interview. There's two parts to this clip with General McGregor, who was a senior advisor to the Pentagon. Let's hear what he has to say about how the uh, war's being conducted.
1: Colonel Doug McGregor is a retired U.S. Army colonel and government official. And you might have seen him recently on Fox News and making some people in Washington very angry with too many facts. Uh, He was, Douglas McGregor was proposed as US ambassador to Germany and his nomination was blocked. In November, 2020, he was appointed uh, senior advisor to the acting secretary of defense towards the end of the administration. And now here we are in a very momentous time. Uh, Welcome Colonel McGregor to the gray zone.
4: Good to be with Uh, you.
1: Is peace possible? And why is Biden seemingly so hostile to negotiating and de-escalating?
4: Well, at this point, I think we have to conclude that there is a universal opposition to any peace uh, arrangement that involves uh, a recognition of any Russian success. Uh, in fact, if anything, it looks more and more as though Ukrainians are almost incidental to the operation in the sense that they are there to impale themselves on the Russian army and, uh, die in great numbers because the real goal of this entire thing is the destruction of the Russian state and Vladimir Putin, and no one is prepared to stop anything as long as there is the slightest hope that something terrible will happen to Russia and to Putin. Of course, I don't see much evidence that that's going to be the case, but it doesn't really matter here. Uh, everyone has universally signed on for the Russian hate campaign or hatred for Russia campaign, and that seems to go on regardless of uh, what is reported. And, and frankly, the absence of much truth in reporting and, and a lot of wishful thinking in its place is hard to uh, overestimate or exaggerate. It's terrible.
0: So, um, David, I'll give you a a reply to that. But uh, it's hard to fault what he's actually saying there that it's clear that throughout the West and obviously including the United States itself, it is absolutely hate Putin. And uh, it's been declared in many places that the real objective is nothing to do with protecting Ukrainians it's to do with overthrowing Putin.
2: Yes, it's never been anything to do with protecting Ukrainians. You know, we were reporting on people talking, you know, five, six years ago, that the West is leading the Ukraine up the up the Primrose path because the, the country's country is going to get wrecked when the inevitable Russian response comes, and and that's now happened. Uh, so the the West has never had you, Ukraine's best interest at heart, uh, 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 an independent and uh, uh, a buffer state, Ukraine a non-aligned Ukraine, was the only satisfactory uh, position that would ever be um, possible uh, without, without violence on, from, from the Russians. So the, the West interests are not, not with the Ukrainian people. They're expendable. The West interests is, would appear to be with a great game, and that great game to, to, is to trigger uh, conflict, trigger rearmament, Uh, trigger changes in Europe. And um, yes, the the removal of Putin uh, does seem to be part of the agenda.
0: Okay, well, let's have a look at uh, part two. Uh, This is uh, a small part of the overall interview, encourage people to go online and watch the whole of the interview with uh, General McGregor. But uh, let's look at this second Alexa clip. OK, well, for some reason, we lost the uh, audio on that little clip, which is very, very unfortunate. I don't know why that happened. Um, David, you want to come in? Well, just to say what what's been
2: claimed about the Russian losses okay? and just what's the, what's the claims from the, the other side, the Western Ukrainian side? The Ukrainians claim 14,000 Russian dead. Uh, American uh, intelligence sources put it. It's a conservative estimate of seventy thousand dead, which would mean total casualties something in the forty to fifty thousand range, which w- which would be more than enough to stop a, an army the size that the Russians put in in place pretty much pretty much dead. I mean that that would essentially render much of it unfit for further combat or, for it's some worked. time. And, okay. um, and that's, that's, that's the Western narrative. But the question is, is any of it remotely true? And it's very difficult to establish to what extent, if at all, the, the Russians have been fought to a standstill. Or is it something more measured in their um, objectives and planning? Um, we we David, really don't know.
0: David, we think we... We think we've got uh, audio back on the second clip, so let's see whether we can uh, uh, bring that in because uh, General McGregor is talking specifically about the conduct of the war.
4: What do you make so far of the dominant narrative we're getting here in the U.S., that militarily, that this has been a disaster for Russia, that Ukraine is putting up fierce resistance that Putin Mm -hmm. did not expect and has inflicted serious military defeat on the Russian invaders Well, as to the last point. It's very obvious that what Ukrainian forces are still active are entirely surrounded, cut off and isolated in various towns and cities. Uh, The Ukrainian forces are incapable of anything but an occasional pinprick attack on on something that doesn't appear to be very robust or dangerous. So the war for all intents and purposes has been decided the the issue for the Russians from the very beginning has been how do we proceed without killing large numbers of civilians and inflicting a lot of property damage and Putin gave very strict orders from the outset that they were to avoid these things the problem with avoiding it is that it has slowed the progress of the operation to the point where it has given false hope both to the Ukrainians but I think has been seized on by people in the West to try and convince the world That a defeat is in progress when in fact the opposite is the case so the the war itself at this stage of the game could be decided very very rapidly uh permanently if putin were to give the order and allow the forces to disregard the concern for civilians and property damage but he hasn't done that he has continued to negotiate even though he recognizes that the people sitting across from him really are not in a position to deliver very much They're being told what to do. And it's very obvious that Washington wants this to continue as long as possible in the hopes that uh, Russia will be desperately harmed. Uh, I just don't see that happening. This morning, the latest polling data was given to me from uh, Eastern Poland about Russia and 70% of the Russian population is firmly behind Vladimir Putin. Uh, That's a very large percentage in any conflict for any president to enjoy. And that's up, up almost 10%. Yeah. Allegedly lost 2,000 dead. Uh, I have no way of confirming that. Nobody else does. That may well be the case, but out of 200,000 forces, 200,000 troops, that's a re- not an unreasonable amount for three weeks of fighting. The thousands of Ukrainians who've been killed, soldiers, is anyone's guess because obviously Kiev isn't going to report that honestly. We're going to get inflated figure figures for their opponents and untrue figures for themselves so i think the big problem right now is that in the west there is no truth there is wishful thinking and there is this impression of success by the ukrainians that doesn't stack up in fact the russians are capturing large quantities of western equipment british and american that are being shipped to them at this point so
0: what an incredible statement there from uh, that gentleman that there's no truth left in the West, not in Putin's Russia, but in the West, there's no truth left. Uh, the next clip, uh, the discussion is the no-fly zone. And uh, again, we're going to be hearing from a from a well-qualified American military pilot uh, who is talking about why the US is not keen on going for a, a no-fly zone. And this is very different from anything that you're likely to to hear on the BBC. So let's listen to this Fox News clip.
5: Well, here now, John Venable, retired F-16 pilot and former commander of the US Air Force Thunderbirds. John, thanks for being with us. You're a pilot. President Zelensky is saying, close the skies, give us a no fly zone. This is your thing, but you are adamantly opposed to that. Tell us why. Brian, it's great to be with you. No-fly zones are our bread and butter for the last 25, 30 years. We've been able to dominate the skies over Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, and Libya, mostly because we, uh, we were fighting a third world adversary with very old and dated equipment. Um, when we first moved into Iraq in uh, 1991, It was a challenge for us initially, and and we actually prevailed relatively rapidly because of our overwhelming firepower. That's different over the skies of Ukraine. It would take approximately five fighter squadrons to maintain a cap over the top of Ukraine right now, five fighter squadrons operating full time. And that's not including all of the other support assets that would go with it, the combat search Mm -hmm. and rescue teams, the uh, airborne tankers, the surveillance platforms that would be required to actually be able to control those platforms once they're over a Ukraine. Mm. And the opportunity for us to actually lose fighters and lose aircrew over that would grow exponentially and be much higher than it's ever been in the last 25 or 30 years. So the challenges in, in that against us as a, a nation, fighting um, the most advanced surface-to-air weapon system in the world, the S-400, would be daunting. But the second side of this is, where does the no-fly zone end? Mm. Because of the advanced ranges of weapons that are, are fired off of our platforms and Russian platforms, You can actually launch a a weapon outside of whatever you want to define, whether it's an escape, an evacuation corridor or not. You could shoot into that corridor and then uh, be relatively quote-unquote safe because Mm. you're not in the corridor. So this uh, opportunity for us to actually spiral out of control Mm. with this kind of of, um, engagement with a peer competitor, would very likely turn into an all-out war. And that's why I'm not full. Yeah.
0: So this is a very different opinion from the uh, uh, the opinion that we're we're seeing in Western media, the BBC, the press in UK. We're not really getting the substance as to why there's been this reluctance. So it's taken that uh, gentleman F-16 pilot, if I remember correctly, in order to talk about some of the problems Uh, But he then went on to really ram home what the concern was. And uh, let's just listen to part two of the clip. So, John, the next step down apparently or seems to be these MiG jets. I want you to listen to the Pentagon's
5: statement on rejecting those fighter jets. Listen. All
3: right. We do not
1: support the transfer of additional fighter aircraft to the Ukrainian Air Force at this time and
5: therefore have no desire to see them in our custody either. We believe the best way to support Ukrainian defense is by providing them the weapons and the systems that they need most to defeat Russian aggression, in particular, anti-armor and air defense. So the Pentagon says they don't need this. President Zelensky says we need these. Your thoughts on the back and forth here? Well, Brian, it's awfully interesting for us to tell the Ukrainians what they need, as opposed to listen to what they're asking for. A no-fly zone is out of the question, but the idea that we can flip-flop on this, uh, this providing assets, air assets to Ukraine is just absolutely ludicrous. Um, on Sunday, uh, Secretary Blinken had, had basically told the world that we were going to, had brokered this deal and it was gonna happen. and then. The following Tuesday, three days ago, you had Victoria Nuland actually uh, acting like she had no idea that it was taking place. While that may have been true, it just goes to show you that this is foreign policy in a blender Mm. where not even people inside the the State Department understand what's going on. Yeah, it's not. It's not.
0: no go please if i I could
5: go on yep these these fighters that we're talking about are 1970s and early 1980s vintage platforms they're dated aircraft Mm. even in the russian inventory and the idea that we would uh escalate this into a Mm. world war by providing them with those assets is equally ludicrous it does if you yep sorry if, if you go back to the the vietnam war the country that gave foreign military aid to North Vietnam in the form of every SA-2 that they fired at our airmen and every um, uh, Soviet MiG-17, MiG-19 and MiG-21, which was their most advanced fighter at the time, every one of those was provided Mm. to fight our our air force. And over 1,700 of our aircraft were shot down, many of them at the hands of these same weapons. For us to look at this and say, you, 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 we could escalate mm. this into something that's out of control yeah. is not a head scratcher. Uh. It's just flat out unbelievable. John,
0: we got to leave it there. So I'm going to suggest that that uh, puts a very different view on what, what uh, the American military are really thinking about. And that man is pointing out the dangers of of just supplying Ukraine with what is even outdated equipment. Now, the General McGregor that you you heard a few minutes ago went on to talk about huge problems with the American military, including the fact that the American military was in such a poor state at the moment that it would be unable to bring substantial numbers of troops into Europe if there was to be some form of escalation in the conflict. And the figure which he talks about is around 80,000 troops, possibly 100,000, American troops would be as much as they could cope with. And then he said we'd be worried about getting their equipment into Europe. So Mike, huge changes here have been going on in the background. America very big at standing up and telling other people what to do. But now we're seeing that when it comes to the crunch, they haven't necessarily got the assets. And I'll just bring this image up on screen. This is just incredible. This was a multi-billion dollar warship Uh, called the the USS Bonhomme Richard, had a fire some time ago, which they couldn't extinguish. As a result, this uh, ship is going to be scrapped and billions thrown away. Um, For want of a fire extinguisher, that's not quite true. But what you can say is that the US Navy was unable to extinguish this fire. And as a result, this warship literally going to be thrown away. So are we getting full reports of the situation at the moment with the US and Western military? No, we're not.
1: Um, So let's uh, come back to the UK and and British media coverage of what's going on in Ukraine. And uh, here's the Telegraph with a spectacular article from Saturday, uh, inside Azov, the far right brigade killing Russian generals and playing a PR game in the Ukraine war. Uh, And uh, well, this, Let's just have a look at a couple of the quotes from this. While most of Ukraine's armed forces have been quietly engaged in the grind of a uh, grueling tug of war with Russia, one battalion has been busy putting out slick videos and images trumpeting its own achievements. In a photograph released last week, a burly man in dark blue uniform lies unconscious in the snow-covered ground, his right side caked with blood. Uh, Azov has eliminated a major general and by the sword shalt thou live, reads the caption. Uh, David, uh, this is the introduction to this article, and immediately we're pushing out. Uh, well, what kind of uh, propaganda is this?
2: Oh, uh, glorifying. Um, well, the glorifying the Azov Battalion. The Azov Battalion are now, it would appear, uh, to be viewed officially as heroes of the of the struggle against um, the nasty Russians who are Hitler-like in their approach?
1: Well, it gets better because the Telegraph went on. Uh, But Azov has been active in the last month. In particular, its well-oiled PR machine has been producing Ukraine's arguably best quality war videos with camera drones perfectly capturing the attacks as they happen in real time. Ukraine's armed forces have happily used Azov's videos as visual proof of the country's counterattacks on the invading army. So, you know, how can it go any better? This is fantastic. Azov we should all be uh, singing its praises, it seems, according to the Telegraph, Azov battalion was one of several volunteer vo- forces that took the job of fighting the separatists that the army in, uh, seemingly did not want to do. Months later, uh, prominent rights advocates uh, such as Human Rights Watch reported credible allegations of torture and other egregious abuses by Azov and other volunteer battalions, but we can forget about all that because they're doing such a great job uh, with, with, against the Russians. So uh, what are they talking about here? They're talking about uh, the fact that Azov Brigade had been shelling the Donbass for, well, since 2014. And this had never been covered really ter- to any great extent by the Western media, particularly in the UK. Uh, but then the article goes on then to show some wonderful images. So here we've got a swastika adorns the wall of an Azov battalion bunkhouse uh, in um, Mariupol in 2014. Uh, And then we've got, uh, as of battalion takes part in military exercises in 2015. Uh, And then we've got uh, the battalion adopted the Nazi uh, Wolfangle uh, as its emblem, uh, saying that it views it as a stylized version of the letters N and I standing for National Idea. Okay. But singing the praises of this organization, Brian, and this is the British press. And if, if we
0: were to do it, Mike, I suggest we'd be closed down next week probably via the online harms bills. This is outrageous propaganda coming out of the mainstream media.
1: So let's have a look at some outrageous fake news coming out of the mainstream media because this was in The Guardian on Saturday, Russian cosmonauts boarding ISS, that's the International Space Station, wearing colors of the Ukraine flag. That was their headline, Russian cosmonauts wearing colors of the Ukraine flag. Um, And uh, they said three Russian cosmonauts have arrived at the International Space Station wearing yellow flight suits with blue accents, colors that match the Ukrainian flag. The men were the first new arrivals on the space station since the start of the Russian war in Ukraine last month. Uh, The cosmonauts blasted off successfully from Russia, leased uh, launch facility in Kazakhstan in their Soyuz spacecraft on Friday. Uh, They smoothly docked with the station just over three hours later, joining two Russians, four Americans and a German on the orbiting outpost. Video of... uh, The video taken as the spaceship prepared to dock with the space station uh, showed uh, one of the uh, astronauts there were cosmonauts wearing a blue flight suit. It was unclear what, if any, message the yellow uniforms they changed into were intended to send. Well, this is absolute fake news. If we can put that back on screen, please, because that's, (laughs) it's just lies. If we go back to 2014, here's Russia Today. Now, I've taken this from the Wayback Machine uh, to show that this uh, the date that this was uh, taken from. But but as you scroll down this article, well, look, we have uh, Russian cosmonaut uh, Oleg uh, Artemyev uh, with toys used as an indicator of weightlessness by ISS crews. And what colour uh, uniform is he wearing there? Well, surprisingly, he's wearing yellow and blue. Yellow and blue. Yeah. And let's see a tweet from him in 2015. Um, again, prominent... Uh, um, yellow and blue. So is this a statement uh, about uh, the Ukraine war? Absolutely not. Uh, Was it an attempt by The Guardian and other mainstream media in the UK and uh, in the West to present it as being uh, another uh, statement, um, you know, decrying the war? It absolutely was. And David, I don't really don't know what to say at this point, because this kind of activity, is what would be protected by the online safety bill. And i just mention, if anybody didn't see our coverage of that on Friday, g- watch Friday's news programme. It's really important. But this, this would be protected by that legislation, David?
2: Oh, clearly, yes. This is, this is uh, the, the finest in British journalism. The fact that it's not true and have just made it up for um, momentary uh, political support of an establishment narrative uh, is is not the point uh, the point is it 's an establishment narrative
1: yes okay well let 's come on to hunter Biden
2: yes well let 's start with a little video okay so Hunter Biden had a laptop it went in to be repaired, and a nice a nice gentleman um, got got the the contract to repair it and Hunter never picked it up, uh, and this gentleman who is um, um McIsaac's his name, he's of Scottish extraction, I've seen some very fine photographs of him in a uh, in a uh, Scottish military style Tammy hat, and um, he had a little look as to what was on the laptop when it wasn't collected, and made a copy, uh, which he thought was prudent for his own um, safety, and it found its way to the Trump campaign, it found its way into the public domain. And then it was. There was the New York Times called into question its uh, the 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 accuracy, the validity um, uh, of of this of this information. They suggested it was all all a hoax, and the White House doubled down. Let's watch them doubling down on this.
5: The president has said, and you have tweeted, that allegations of wrongdoing based on files pulled from Hunter Biden's laptop are Russian disinformation. There is a new book by a Politico reporter that finds some of the files on there are genuine. Is the White House still going with Russian disinformation?
1: I think it's broadly known and widely known, Peter, that there was a broad range of Russian disinformation
4: back in 2020.
2: Okay. 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 Did everyone get that? The Biden laptop is Russian disinformation, right? I'll be quite clear. Yeah, well, not so much. Uh, and here we've got uh, the Times reporting uh, that's, that the New York Times, uh, the Brit- this is the London Times reporting, but the New York Times uh, now admits that the emails on the laptop are, in fact, genuine. Um, and, uh, oh dear, uh, they continue the uh, New York Times has confirmed the contents of the laptop belonging to President Biden's son Hunter are authentic. More than two years after the story broke, that is after it no longer influences the election, the laptop which Biden's son left in a Delaware repair shop contained a cache of emails relating to business activities with various companies, including Burisma, a Ukraine energy company, on whose board he sat. Uh, but the one failed to stick. Biden went on to win the election. His son remains under investigation by the Justice Department, uh, which has been investigating his failure to pay taxes. New York Times has, has had questioned the provenance of the emails. Donald Trump, when he was president, seized on the cash after it was leaked during the 2020 election campaign. The Republicans insisted it proved Biden, while vice president, shaped American foreign policy in Ukraine to benefit his son. But of course. It was all swept under the carpet. And it's too late now because Biden's president. And again, the mainstream media not only failed to do its job, actually did the complete opposite of its job. Mm. They were involved in the cover-up. Now, they're currently investigating him for um, basically breaking rules on on taking instructions from foreign powers and influencing uh, American domestic policy, which is a difficult thing to prove. I understand that the the laptop contained videos showing uh, blatant and obvious law-breaking and there doesn't seem to be any action taken on that. And that is also suspicious. But we'll watch this one closely. And just to finish on this, um, we've got here a satirical piece uh, from the New York, um, apparently from the New York Times, obviously not because it's telling the truth. Uh, New York Times, uh, we lied to get Biden elected easily verified verifiable data from Hunter's laptop is not Russian disinformation at all. And then it continues, the truth was just not fit to print.
0: Uh, excellent segment, David. And uh, where does that leave us? Uh, we, we've, been, <laughs> we've been told that the West is not telling the truth, but of course, not only does it not tell the truth, it then lies about whether it's telling the truth or not. Uh, meanwhile, of course, Russia under huge pressure because apparently even if they don't do anything uh, wrong, they're going to be accused of doing something lo- wrong. Uh, Russia Today's statement here from a couple of days ago, Putin on Ukraine and the West, key takeaways from the latest speech. The collective West clinging on its crumbling dominance has been the ultimate driver of the crisis. Well, that seems to be uh, pretty close to the truth, but uh, Putin also made another a statement. He said, I want ordinary Western people to hear me as well. You're being persistently told that your current difficulties are the result of Russia's hostile actions and you have to pay from your own pockets for the efforts to counter the alleged Russian threat. All of that is a lie. Well, we could have a discussion about what's happening in an economic sense at the moment, uh, but it, this claim doesn't seem unreasonable either. Uh, but if we go to how the BBC is putting its news together at the moment." Uh, it's very interesting how they are going for people's minds in this country, and everything, of course, is being driven that the Russians are bad, they're incompetent. This headline: Ukraine. What has been Russia's military mistakes? But many of the articles, the whole substance that you're supposed to take in, is based on maps, and uh, it's very interesting if you start to look in detail at these maps as to what uh, questions pop to the surface, but. Uh, this particular one here at the top of it, it's saying that the BBC's Quinton Somerville, who's been in Kharkov this week, says Russian forces there have grown frustrated and not being able to take the city and have turned to artillery strikes instead, destroying entire neighborhoods, which we haven't seen any pictures of at all. Mm. Right, So that's a claim. But at the end of this particular article, it then said, well, part of the trouble with the uh, the warfare in Ukraine is it's so fast moving. So apparently they're frustrated they're not getting anywhere but because the warfare is very fr- is very fast moving. Because they
1: never have covered any war ever in the past. Isn't uh, it? Apparently
0: and if you look at the uh, blue arrow at the bottom of the screen what we're highlighting there is it's taken 14, 14 BBC media specialists to put this article together consisting of a few coloured maps and I'm fascinated that the the effort is is there. Uh, Here's some more maps where uh, they're trying really to show that there hasn't been any advances. But what is the provenance of this of these maps? What is the accuracy? Uh, Well, we don't know. But here's the BBC claiming that uh, they are tracking the Russian invasion. Uh, We've got another map here. And now it gets more interesting because we're starting to get some information about where these maps are coming f- from. So we've got the Center for Information Resilience, and that has links to the Ukraine itself. The Conflict Intelligence uh, Team is another one of the cen- center, for, sorry, center for Information Resilience we've covered. And... Uh, uh, at the end of the article, there was quite a big paragraph hit here, which brings in two new organizations. So we've got the Institute for the Study of War and the American Enterprise Institute's Critical Threats Project. So this all sounds wonderful. I'm sure that they're independent. We usually find they are. Well, we'll see in a minute. Uh, We've also got other maps coming in. This actually was posted up, I think, by the Ministry of Defence as a defence intelligent map. Um, This is quite emotive because we've got little uh, little, um, uh, images to suggest explosions and attacks in certain areas and lots of bright arrows. But down in the corner it says this, warning, ground troops and strike indicators for illustrative purposes only and are not exhausted. exhaustive. Now, David, I asked you about this last night. What are they trying to say? I think they're trying to say that this is an illustrative map and you shouldn't believe a word it says because it's, it's basically not comprehensive.
2: Well, i certainly saying that. Um, and, I, and of course, if you look at the equivalent maps that are produced from Russian sources, they, they show... Quite a different picture, um, and actually knowing what the truth is w- would be very enlightening. Because um, obviously neither side has have a particular interest in being completely upfront with all of the setbacks and difficulties. Um, but you know we have we have a set of maps here to illustrate that the Russians are stalled. We have a set of Russian maps that show no such thing. Um, where's the truth? Uh, we, we are finding it difficult to be certain about that.
0: We're finding it difficult, but what's becoming easier is to say that uh, the people controlling the truth, certainly in uh, UK and the West, are becoming easier to spot. So let's bring our map back on screen and have a little look at some of the players that are around producing such a map. Uh, so we've got the Institute for Study of War, Uh, Key figure in this is Dr. uh, Kimberly Kagan. And uh, if we come across to the American Enterprise Institute, uh, we find that a key player is Frederick W. Kagan. So these are very powerful people in the background. They're providing all sorts of advice to the US government, to the to the military to the intelligence services these are not small players these are big names in what's happening in a geopolitical sense around the world especially when there's any conflict and the americans are involved uh, but uh, we bring in a few hearts here because uh, these two are actually husband and wife which makes it a very closey club and uh, the gentleman himself has got a brother and uh, so Frederick Kagan has got a brother who is Robert Kagan. Uh, he's involved with the project for a new American century. So this is all about helping America's empire say, stay strong across the globe. And the interesting thing about Robert Kagan is that he happens to be married uh, to this lady, Victoria Jane Newland, the US Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs. And of course, this is the lady that was involved in putting Um, billions of dollars into Ukraine and manipulating uh, things behind the scenes so that a regime favorable to the US government was installed Mm. in the Ukraine. I'm only just touching the surface of it here, but we're getting a glimpse of what's really going on. Remember, of course, that BBC's BBC Media Action, the political charity, uh, which is designed to uh, help bring down regimes, Uh, that are unfavorable is controlling the media in Ukraine. There's no doubt about this. And then, of course, if we bring in the funders for BBC media action, it says it's a charity, but in fact, it's uh, totally uh, funded by political activity. So it becomes pretty clear that if we're looking at certainly BBC reports as to what's supposedly uh, happening in the media, it, uh, it's clear that there are very powerful players behind the scenes who are really pulling the strings. And we'll do some more research on this. So uh, where can we go from here? Well, we better just say to people that it's interesting that if you look into this lady's family, she's got Ukrainian connections into the family. And therefore, uh, can we trust her impartial nature on matters to do with Ukraine? I don't think we can. It gets worse because have a look at this one. This is from the Ministry of Defense. Uh, a tweet went out. It says Putin is exerting control over the media in occupied regions of Ukraine to further his lies about the invasion. He's, here's how. Now, remember what I've just shown you on screen as to how the West is manipulating things. Have a look at this incredible film clip uh, talking about how Putin is manipulating the media. Thank you. So sorry for people listening in, you got the uh, creepy music, but of course, there was a few statements on screen claiming what Putin was doing, that he was controlling social media, no substance to it at all. But you've put on screen earlier in the news today, uh, Mike, the facts that Zelensky absolutely about controlling the media. So can we believe what we're being told in UK or the West at the moment? We don't think so.
1: No. Okay, if you like what the UK Column's doing and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to join us and help us out there. Uh, You'd be very welcome as a UK Column member and that would be very much appreciated or you could uh, share our material on the various platforms where we still are. Uh, Or you could uh, help us out uh, by picking up something from the UK Column shop, which is at shop.ukcolumn.org. And uh, that is helpful too. Very helpful. I think the next one's yours.: Well, it guess, is indeed. Yeah. right. So back to the telegraph again. And uh, well, suddenly, a bit of backtracking over COVID. Um, COVID death's impossible to calculate as authorities used 14 different ways to record them is the headline. Now, uh, as if we hadn't been talking about this for how long?
0: Two years, yes, Two Okay, years, 18 months, whatever it yes, is. Yes, indeed.
1: Yeah. So let's see, what are they saying? The number of people who've died from COVID in Britain during the pandemic is impossible to determine because of the inconsistent definitions of what is meant by a coronavirus death, researchers have concluded. Now, this is uh, the uh, Oxford uh, Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine that's been putting this out. Uh, Dr. Tom Jefferson, who's uh, from the CEBM, said every night we were given this diet of cases, admissions and deaths, but we found that even the ONS, doesn't have a standard definition for deaths. We found 14 different ways to express the cause of death. Uh, there are a number of death certificates where COVID-19 is the only cause of death, and that's not possible. It has to be something like COVID-19-induced pneumonia if it goes to the kidneys and you get kidney failure. Um, uh, we found some organizations coded COVID deaths even in the absence of positive COVID tests. Some nursing homes uh, had allocated casualty, uh, causality sorry, to uh, COVID-19 not on the basis of tests, but on when those deaths occurred. Usually in the spring of 2020, nursing homes decide themselves that this was the cause. But of course, it wasn't all down to the nursing homes. They were under quite a lot of pressure at the time. Uh, They said what they said, uh, but the British government uh, was busy putting legislation in place to make sure that no follow-up postmortems could be done uh, to actually establish the cause of death. Uh, David, Uh,
2: Timing is everything with these things, Uh, Mike. I'm struck that the uh, Oxford group for uh, for evidence-based medicine is now speaking out about this when it no longer matters, when it was highly critical and would be influencing the lockdowns and restrictions on millions of people's lives. We were reporting it, all of these things. Where were they?
1: Uh, well, actually, David, that, I'm afraid I'm going to have to push back on that a little bit and say that's pretty unfair because the Center for be- Evidence-Based Medicine has been speaking out all the way through this. Hennigan and and his colleagues have been absolutely vocal, but the mainstream media hasn't always given them a platform uh, on which to uh, to get yeah. the word out. So we have mentioned them many times over the last two years.
2: Oh well, I I, I withdraw that comment. Where was the mainstream media? You're quite <laughs> right. If they be speaking out, good on them.
1: Yes. Okay. And but uh, look, uh, good news for everybody. Well, at least everybody over uh, age 75. uh, Because everybody aged over 75 is now eligible for their spring COVID-19 booster vaccine. The NHS will contact them, uh, and they will be given their opportunity. So maybe, uh, Debbie, I could ask you what your thoughts are on that. You must be very pleased to see this. I'm horrified,
3: honestly, horrified. And and this is only the start because Evusheld, which is the prophylactic um, that's coming out from AstraZeneca, that's coming out for the rest of us, well, not for all of us, um, but for the majority of the population, to stop us from all variants. So all variants will be protected. So it just looks as though it's going to be one jab after the other, after the other, after the other. And it's interesting to see it's the over 75s, and of course the most vulnerable, And immunosuppressed that will be offered them first.
0: Yeah, well, we're not 75 and so we're escaping this one at least at the moment, but you've been really um, asking the MHRA some difficult questions and you're now starting to make some progress. I think this is is really tremendous, Debbie. I'll just bring on screen an email that you received. It's very small print, so I'll read it um, so it's to you from the MHRA, and it says, I'm very sorry for the delay in providing a response to your pre-submitted question. Uh, I note uh, below comment to provide this by today, 15th of March. Please be assured that we're addressing your question along with your correspondence of the 16th February 2022. A response will be posted this week. Once again, I apologise for the delay. So once the pressure was on them, they started to squirm. Now, you did receive a letter, uh, which I can call up on screen. Um, Would you like me to read that, or do you just want to put some introductory, uh, make some introductory comment first?
3: No, you please go ahead, Brian.
0: Okay, let's uh, let's bring it on. So here it is, dated the 18th of March from the Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. Dear Ms. Evans, thank you for your recent emails of the 16th of February and 14th of March in which you requested information on COVID-19 vaccines and further information about the MHRA board meeting of March t- uh, 2022. It may be helpful if the issues you raise are taken in turn. And the uh, first one there is cancellation of the MHRA board meeting. On the 4th of March 2022, we sent an email to those registered to attend the March uh, board meeting held in public to inform that the meeting had been cancelled. Please accept our apologies for the later Eventbrite email, which contained conflicting information. This was an error on the Eventbrite, and I apologise for any inconvenience caused. I can confirm that the March... MHRA board meeting was held as a, quote, closed meeting and was not held in public. Just bring you in on screen, uh, Debbie. This is fascinating that once uh, the MHRA clearly felt under pressure that UK column and others were asking about vaccine adverse reactions and deaths, suddenly a board meeting, which had been at least made public via Zoom, um, was held in private. Could it be that they wanted to discuss the fact the public was now watching them?
3: I do hope so. And thanks to everyone that's um, clicked into the MHRA board meeting. I think there's nearly three thousand six hundred views now. But, you know, I got tickets for that board meeting and within 24 hours of me being accepted on it, the board meeting was cancelled and therefore my question wasn't able to be asked in public. Which I thought was a little suspicious, in, in, especially as at the beginning of every board meeting, they they say this is transparent. You know, we want to we want to engage with the public. Yet, yeah, are we going to see an MHRA board meeting on YouTube again? I I just simply don't know.
0: Well, we don't know, and if we get back into the letter, it gets uh, pretty interesting because and in, uh, on the topic of pre-submitted questions, you'd submitted a question to them. Uh, they start to talk about the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, But they said, where you requested this information, it would be handled as business as usual and would not be treated under the Freedom of Information Act. It's almost like they considered trying to delay a response by dragging it into the Freedom of Information circuit, but they didn't do that. And then it went on to say, I'm sorry for the technical difficulties he experienced during the February board meeting in public. This was due to technical difficulties with the live streaming. Uh, I can conf- confirm that the sound loss has been resolved in the recording. We've published the recording. So the moment they were under pressure to ask, answer uh, difficult questions, they started to have problems with their live streaming. And I just want to show people June Rain's signature at the bottom of this letter is very, very, very small. It's almost like this lady wishes she could disappear into the paper. But uh, the final sentence here says something very interesting. I am attaching a response to your question. I hope you find this helpful. Should you have any further questions? Now, normally, if there's an attachment to a letter at the bottom of the letter, under the signature, it should say "attachment" and it should name the attachment in case the documents, the covering letter and the attachment, get separated. But in this case, she simply refers to this uh, response, and uh, there's no there's no real um, identification of the response. Now, I've called the response up on screen and you can see it just starts with Debbie's question. Please, can you tell me if there's an investigation ongoing with regard to the 2010 deaths reported after COVID vaccines? Well, I understand you cannot say if these uh, were re- attributable to the vaccines until there's an investigations, we will never know. And Debbie, you went on to compare it with the one death from doxycycline Uh, And the rest of the text, I'm not going to read because people can freeze it and read it on screen, but it's known as Waffle. It is Waffle, uh, back about the yellow card scheme, where they do not appear to me to have answered your question. Just very quickly, Debbie, what's your take?
3: No, they haven't answered my question. And if anybody wants to go back to the MHRA board meeting at around two hours, Alison Cave was asked about athletes that were collapsing, and that question wasn't answered either. And I'm if you look at that text, if you freeze the screen and look at that text, you can see that they're talking about evaluating natural deaths over time to see the trends occurring. They're also saying that by chance, some people will experience serious adverse reactions. And they're also saying that, you know, it was a, a kind of given that some of the fatalities would have been older people and immunosuppressed. Well. Try telling the families of the youngsters with myocarditis that. So I found the whole response, um, waffle and word soup and extremely offensive to people that have experienced serious adverse reactions. But I noticed that uh, she, well, I presume it's her, I don't know who's written that response, but they refer to Regulation 28 report to prevent future deaths. Now, this is because of my question with regards to doxycycline. And it would appear, I don't know whether she's trying to give us a hint here, but it would appear that the coroner needs to uh, request uh, an investigation. So my question now probably will go to um, Thomas Teague, who's the chief coroner in England, because obviously the MHRA don't really want to answer my question. But perhaps if June Rain is listening, or is watching in into UK column today. All I want is an answer to the question of when, not if, when the investigation to the serious Adverse Reactions will be started and what procedures will be used. So hopefully she might hear my question this time around.
0: Okay, thank you for that, Debbie. You've put the pressure on the MHRA, but of course what's needed is for thousands and thousands of people to be pushing the MHRA to answer this very simple question. Meanwhile, we'll stay on the case. But you've got some concerns about the MHRA and how competent it is. Uh, There's a couple of screenshots uh, from uh, June June Rain speaking here. And uh, look at the text (laughs) under the images. It says, but all down to Ted Ross, no one's safe until everyone is safe. And uh, I've labelled that the MHRA unsure as to who is who and what is what, because of course, Ted Ross was really a reference to this man, Dr. Ted Ross, <laughs> from, from the World Health Organization. So as quite rightly, you've said, is the MHRA competent? But before we end your segment, uh, Debbie, we'll just show the audience this I- exclusive little clip, which is the fact that you were able to get in and speak to uh, none other than Jeremy Hunt when he was talking about patient safety on a Zoom meeting. So the first part of the clip that we're bringing in on screen has been cut to keep it short. um, But nevertheless, substance is there. The first part of the clip is just to give a bit of context to what uh, Jeremy Hunt is doing. And then we'll be able to see in the second clip what his reaction was to your question. So let's uh, run this first one.
6: Well, two participate in a session organised by CSOP which does such valuable and important work and it's a particular honour to be alongside Jed and Sanjay who I worked very closely with when I was Health Secretary and um, I remember my visits to to Wigan and the amazing work that Sanjay has been doing up there and uh, so I really want to um, uh, thank you for this opportunity and um, I, I want to address uh, the issue of the blame culture that you talked about, um, but also three other things that I think need very close attention if we're going to continue to make progress on patient safety. And the first thing I want to say is that we are making progress. I think that, uh, you know, I, I heard a story today of somebody who very sadly lost their... Daughter in a terrible era because sepsis wasn't spotted early enough, and uh, it was the most sad story. But the one rare sunshine is that the hospital have been totally honest and transparent about what happened, um, and clearly want to learn from it. And and that is something that was possible because we now have a duty of candor. I don't think the duty of candor is implemented. Uh, university as well as it needs to be, but it's a big step forward from the sort of cover ups that used to be very common. So there's that.
0: So that was uh, Jeremy Hunt uh, really giving an introduction to what he was doing in the Zoom meeting. And uh, Debbie, you've taken him at face value. He says that he is there to help protect patients from what's happening in the NHS and what's happening with drugs. Uh, let's watch the second clip where you got the opportunity to put really the same question that you would posed to the ML- MHRA because his answer was fascinating. Let's play clip two.
6: Because we're drawing to a close, Iqbal, did you want to take another couple of questions and I can I'm happily talk about all of them together? Would that be helpful? Okay.
0: That would be because
6: we've got two colleagues who got their hands up and I think it'll be only fair. But could I ask you both, Debbie and Ondine, please try and be very short in your questions. It's first to Debbie.
3: Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for allowing me to ask a question. Um, Jeremy, I just wanted to ask, because the MHRA obviously are in charge of patient safety when it comes to pharmacovigilance and the um, PA, uh, PEAG group at the Commission for Human Medicines. But according to the MHRA data um, as I'm seeing today, as of today, there are over um, one and a half million serious adverse reactions and uh, 2,000 deaths. Now I know we cannot attribute these to the vaccine and I appreciate that. However, without forensic investigations and without further investigation, we're never gonna know. And as, as a nurse, I'm meeting people who are saying that they're reporting yellow cards to the MHRA, but they're not receiving any help or support back either from their GPs or from the MHRA. So I just wondered what your thoughts were with regarding to a, an investigation on the serious adverse reactions that we're currently seeing. Thank you.
6: Debbie's question, I, I want to take that away um, because I... Um, I think it's something that my committee might be interested in looking at. So I'll need to talk to my other members of my committee because we decide these things democratically. But I, um, when I was Health Secretary, I commissioned the University of Sheffield, Leeds and Manchester to do a report on medication error. Um, and, you know, we found there were 8000 deaths a year. And, um, you know, obviously, we are very concerned about the uh, adverse reactions that we have from the COVID vaccines. Um It's not for me to make a judgment as to the balance of risk. Um, But I think we do need to fully understand the issues that you raise.
0: So, Debbie, did he run away or do you trust him that he's actually going to go away and ask some serious questions? We're very tight for time. So short answer, please.
3: Okay, well, you know, that wasn't a pre submitted question. Nobody knew that I was going to ask a question. So I have to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I have to say thank you to Jeremy Hunt, even though I never thought I would. Maybe I should have told him I was a government advisor at the Department of Health for five years. Um, I, I forgot to tell him that. But I think we should embrace the fact that he did acknowledge the question that he gave me an answer and gave me a promise that it would be investigated and I think it's up to all of us now to continue to ask Jeremy Hunt where that investigation is when it's going to start and and what his committee have said so for me personally as a nurse (laughs) and he was Secretary of State for Health for a very long time and a lot of people have got a lot to say about him but on this occasion I have to say I was grateful to him for taking the question and for answering it so Let's hope we get some answers.
0: Uh, brilliant. And uh, we're going to say well done to you for taking the initiative and uh, getting on that Zoom call in order to ask him the question direct.
1: Um, yeah. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time now. But David, just to end off with the, the Babylon Bee.
2: Babylon Bee makes the final slide again. Um, and uh, they've got an article here. Uh, restaurants now requiring proof of Ukraine support. That's the one there, yes. Uh, so, and then the, the the text of the article continues. Uh, in the US, as a war between Russia and Ukraine rages on, restaurants across the country are now requiring proof of Ukraine support in order to eat in the restaurants. Patrons have been asked to produce photo ID and open up their social media profiles and prove they've been adequately supporting Ukraine by posting flags and sharing the re- the latest wartime propaganda. Quote, we need to support Ukraine. Uh, as it's the latest thing that we are supposed to support, uh, said the manager of one New York City cafe. Uh, If you aren't adequately supporting uh, the thing that everyone says we are supposed to be supporting at this time, you don't deserve to eat in my store. When asked about whether he would still require vaccine cards due to the pandemic, he stared blankly and said, what? I'm not sure what you're talking about. Patrons who don't have adequate evidence of Ukraine support will then have to show adequate evidence of Russia hatred before entering.
1: <laughs> uh, you couldn't really get much more Orwellian, could you?
2: You couldn't. Well, it's it's, it's it. At least at least the, the Babylon Bee managed to get some satire in that was maybe just a little more extreme than the actual news. Lately, they've been struggling with that.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, we're out of time. We're going to say to. Everybody, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, David and Debbie, thank you for joining UK Column News today. It's pretty evident that uh, the problem is with us. It's our countries that are not telling the truth at the moment, that are pushing out the propaganda, that are causing the harm and fomenting the wars. We need to deal with it, so it's down to all of us. And if you caught a glimpse on screen of a slide which said good bombs and missiles... And you want to know more about what is a good bomb and a good missile as opposed to a bad one, um, then you need to join us for extra time. And remember, of course, if you become a subscriber of UK Column, um, that allows you to uh, get in for our extra time, where we do try to introduce some humour. But that's it for today. Brilliant. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. Bye bye.